welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode is with an individual whom I have recently met and now very much admire. Her name is Tafshir Cosby. She is the Senior Director of the Center for Organizing and Partnership for the National Parents Union, and she is the co-founder and co-chief executive officer of Parent Impact. Tafshir, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Haley, for having me on today. I also admire and respect you. I'm so happy we had a chance to meet. Thank you, Elizabeth, for connecting us. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, you know, Tafshir and I met when we were doing um, an interview about education on News 12 Long Island, and the rest is kind of history that uh, now I know a whole lot about the type of organizing work happening around the country led by organizations that Tafshir is going to speak on today, but also getting to know more people. So I feel really grateful that that we had that Fateful meeting. Absolutely. I agree. So Tafshir, you epitomize the idea of people in and around education, which is are the types of guests that I have. You have both been in brick and mortar schools doing the work as well as around brick and mortar schools doing the work. Why don't you share with our guests a little bit about how you got to where you are today doing the work with the National Parents Union and Parents Impact? Sure. So you know, I, when I got your information, it asked for like my origin story. And I was like, I feel like a superhero, <laughs> like going through like- You what very much are. Um, actually is. But I really equate um, the start of my story to being an advocate really through nurture and nature. Um, my mother was my first advocate that I ever saw and I ever had like the opportunity to uh, be advocated for as her child when I was in uh, the K through 12 system. She showed me as a parent like how critical her role and her voice was and being able to exercise my rights as a student and not be mistreated. So an example of that is I was enrolled in high school in a gifted and talented program in the Votech system. Uh, I was a pregnant teenager at the age of 16 and the school wanted to send me to a low performing school with other pregnant teens. So my mother said, absolutely not. She advocated for me to stay in the school, continue on my current track, And I graduated from that school, top of my class and the top 10 of my class uh, with my one-year-old son who actually attended my graduation. So like, that's an example of the advocacy that I saw happen around me. So really knowing my rights, my school options, being able to advocate for my three children came naturally for me because it was literally something that I had seen done my entire life. What a beautiful Um, example of of the title of this episode, which is the power of a parent. That's just a power of parent or guardian, you know, really speaks to how much impact both on your individual life and now your own children's lives. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, knowing my rights, right. And things that I had learned from my mother, what I started to see was you know, I was, I was that big mouth parent at school. I'm, I'm going to be real and honest, like, right? <laughs> like, I was the mother who was always like, what's happening with my children? Like, making sure that I knew my rights and was really advocating for them. But what I started to see was that there were a lot of other parents who did not know their rights. 
who did not have the same education opportunities to find out what their options were in, in their kids' schools. And a lot of their kids were, you know, I'm from Newark, New Jersey. So a lot of their families and their kids were actually in schools where their kids were failing, right? Like they were being marginalized in these schools. So I said to myself, okay, these are things that I know how to do. Let me start hosting conversations with parents. Let me start talking to parents. Let me start offering my support to show up at schools with parents for meetings, to show up for IEP, IEP meetings, and really be that support for families um, to give them the information and resources they need to be able to fight for their kids' rights. So I started setting up meetings, and then I figured, you know, this was one at a time. Let me find a way to be able to help larger amounts of parents at the same time. So I started setting up community groups. I started leading like things like Girl Scouts, PTA, parent partnership teams to really be able to share with other families what I knew and to help them effectively advocate. Um, so all the while, I was actually working in corporate America through this. So this work that I was doing in the community was actually part-time work, but it really was my passion. Even as I worked in corporate America, it really was my passion to make sure that parents' voices were being heard and they knew their rights. So in 2010, uh, which was a turning point, I was actually introduced to two of my mentors, uh, Chanel Duns and LaVar Young, who are two of the finest New Jerseyans you'd ever want to meet, although LaVar is from Philly, but he's from New Jersey. <laughs> um, they were bringing a New Jersey chapter of the Black Alliance for Educational Options to New Jersey. And they asked me to join them in the work. And I officially worked as a part-time community organizer um, for the first time as a paid organizer, um, which I didn't even know was a thing back then. Um, and it was really through like their professional development and support and guidance that I, I was able to get information on effective organizing, learn about policy, how to communicate. And that really was a springboard for me to be able to start to activate hundreds and thousands of parents across Newark and New Jersey to really be able to effectively advocate um, for their children. So in January of 2020, when the National Parents Union got started, um, I was invited to our first convening and I was asked to be a national delegate to be able to advocate nationally for families. So I happy, happily accepted it um, and really supporting parents across the United States, help them to step into their power is my calling and my path forward. And I'm happy to, to be able to support parents in this work every single day. So that is my origin story. Wow. So you just really spent your entire career dedicated to helping others learn how to be that type of family member the way your mother was for you to get the best for their children, which... Absolutely. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So, so during your time in working amidst all these different organizations, even informally and formally, what have you landed on is this topic, this, you know, title for our episode, the power of the parent. Yeah. I mean, that, that definition goes a lot of ways, but to me, the definition really is uh, for parents to have like the authority to be able to execute their rights and be able to make decisions for their children, specifically when it comes to education, right? And all parents are endowed with that power within them, right? They are, I, I wholeheartedly believe that parents are the second stakeholders in any conversation regarding education because they're the decision makers for what choices they make for their children educationally. Their children are first because they're the actual receivers. But right, as a parent, right, what you really want to make sure is your child is having the best experience within a school building but also that your child has equitable access to opportunity, right? That would launch them into a successful life. So in marginalized communities, 
you know, parents have to fight for their right to even be able to be in that space to uh, make decisions for their children. Um, you know, they're, again, they're critical stakeholders. So for me, it's really having the right to make decisions for your children in, in education. And that, as you mentioned, looks different in different places for a variety of uh, access barriers and structural systemic issues. So talk to me and talk to everyone. I think of this as a conversation amongst friends and I realize our listeners are friends as well, but yes. talk to all of us about what you've seen across the country to be the best advice you could give or different outlets as they try to organize and support one another in this community engagement work? Yeah. So I think, you know, the way that people traditionally think about community engagement, specifically in schools, is it's usually an in-person meeting. It's where families come together, where they get information to learn, to share, to come up with solutions to problems that they face in their communities. Um, and it really is cathartic, you know, being in a room with other families, being able to, to share that same energy. Um, you know, during COVID, that was a challenge for a lot of folks who work in this, in this space, right? Like not being able to be together, not being able to, to come together. Uh, but I think folks who work in this space, like in the space of professionally doing community engagement or even just trying to engage any community, I think the ones who truly understand what community is, community engagement is, right? Because it's inherently about the relationships that you build with families and how you're able to continue the relationships and, and curate the relationships so they trust you, right? So you have a, a trust, an opportunity to, to trust families, meet them where they are, but it's really about building that relationship. So my advice to everyone who are, are working in any type of community engagement space is to really make sure that you're building that trust with families, you're meeting them where they are, and you really have an opportunity to listen to what the parents' needs are. You know, I've worked in the space of community engagement in schools and different places. And, you know, my struggle a lot of times was the idea that I needed to work for. I needed to work in a space of like telling parents what they needed instead of sitting back and listening to what it is that they need and to be able to support them in a way that's helpful to them as parents and as a community, instead of just thinking about, you know, what, what my lens is going to be to be able to help them. That message of listening more than talking is one that I hear come up a lot from, from folks that join this podcast, speaking very wisely about how they found the most dramatic impact in the work that they do, either with students or with teachers, or now we're talking about another stakeholder, which are families. And it really matters because we know this from anecdotal experience, it sounds like you're sharing right now, and also from research that listening is, is even more important than speaking when you're trying to work together to solve problems. You know, Hakshir, you spoke a little bit about the pandemic, and I, I know that it has changed dramatically the landscape of engagement. I'm wondering, you know, how schools responded to working with or working, you know, collaboratively, collaboratively with families from your vantage point during the pandemic and how that might change in a post-pandemic world? I think the schools that worked best with families were schools that already had um, a successful uh, family engagement program already set up, right? Ones that were already working with families in their communities to provide not only uh, opportunities for parents to engage with each other, but things like resources and, and food and connections to community organizations 
that were really able to activate these um, partner partnerships that they had to be able to help families um, outside of the school building in ways that they needed to be helped. So I think I think those schools were were best equipped to be able to help families during the pandemic. Um, I think that for for it was most of them got on board <laughs> right at the end, thinking about like well maybe towards the middle about what parents needed. Um, but definitely the ones that were better prepared were the ones who, who actually had um, fully complete family engagement programs that offered opportunities and, and um, support for families, like for the whole child, instead of just within the school building. You know, as we were talking the last time, you were talking a little bit about how schools and how families can collaborate and work together. And you said this phrase, which I know is also a popular book, but it's how do we move beyond the bake sale? We have to move beyond the bake sale. What does that mean for <laughs> listeners who have no idea what a bake sale, like what, what is the reference bake sale? Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how we, what it is and yes. how we So first, it. shout out to Ann Henderson, who wrote the actual book, uh, Beyond the Bake Sale. Uh, I recommend that reading for one of the readings for all parent advocates, anyone who wants to really think about um, how you have that effective communication and engagement between parents and, and teachers. So shout out to Ann Henderson for writing that book. Um, but the term beyond the bake sale actually derived even before Ann wrote that book in communities, right? Where parent organizations within schools were not really assisting parents with what, again, they needed to have, right? Like, so you know, there again, I love a good bake sale as much as the next person, right? Like I love me a good brownie. I love a good cupcake. I love, I love a Katie did. Like I love those like $15 boxes of Katie did's, right? <laughs> but, you know, and, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that all parent organizations need to be like fight, 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 right? But like, where is the medium? Where is the middle ground for that? But really only focusing on fundraising, um, like clickish parent hierarchies, building, you know, just, just really creating the space for like some parents to be able to advocate, right, and building their personal relationship with school leaders is never going to support parents in the way that they need to be supported. It's never going to support the wide range of parents that you have in the school and families. And really, again, what parents need is the power to have authority to execute their rights and be able to make decisions for their children. So that's really where that term came from, where parents weren't finding that the organization that was there to support them or even support their relationship with teachers was not listening to them and not supporting them in the way that they wanted to, to be supported. They were kind of like individualistically building this opportunity for themselves, but not supporting parents. So that's kind of like where that came from. Cause I've been saying that for years, like, how do we make sure that parents are being supported in the way that their children need within the school and really building that authentic relationship and that partnership between teachers and really everyone at the school um, outside of just having the big sale? Big sales are important. Again, I don't want anybody to say like they are important. They are able to, you know, these organizations are able to raise funds for student supports and things that families need within the school building. But how do we find a way to be able to effectively do both? Um, and really support parents in the way they need to be supported. It's definitely a yes and. Yes. You know, that 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 phrase, like it's a do the bake sale and yep. do the listening, do the advocacy work, do the real Absolutely. digging into community need and equity issues within your in your space and learn help support one another to speak on that behalf and gather together to rally the efforts, right? So I'm sure that you've seen the more collective voices you have speaking on an issue, 
the louder the voices are to affect change. Absolutely. And the, more, alone. the more stakeholders you have at the table, right? And, and, and you're way more effective with the more stakeholders that you have at the table, because then you have everyone coming together to decide what's best for children, because that's why we do this work, right? We do this work for children. We don't do it for ourselves as adults. We do this to be able to provide what children need. So having those those um, diverse stakeholder voices at the table and really having everyone immersed in the educational system, having everyone educated or the full educational system that parents choose for their children um, goes a long way to making sure that parents understand their role, making sure parents understand what's needed to make this change and working together in partnership to be able to make those changes for kids. Speaking of what's best for kids, Steph Shear, recent news revealed that NAEP's scores for nine-year-olds declined in math for the first time ever and in ELA saw the largest drop since 1990. What are parent organizations, community groups saying about this decline? So first, that broke my heart. I had to, I had to like go into mourning. <laughs> like just I feel you. I feel it. Yes. Um, yes. You know, because it, it really spoke to all of the kids in, in America, right? Um, you know, having done most of my work in marginalized communities, what I already knew is that in marginalized communities, our, our children um, were already not up to the level that they needed to be. So this just tells me that, you know, children in marginalized communities are even further behind than they, they would have been had the pandemic um, not occurred. So specifically for the National Parents Union, you know, we've been trying to raise the conversation surrounding ways that parents can get involved um, in making sure that they understand this information, right? Like even understanding what a NIC score is, uh, because I can tell you there are a lot of parents who have no idea what a NIC score is. They have zero idea. Uh, most of the parents use, uh, a parent can probably tell you what the back score is, right? Because that's something that's coming directly from the teacher, like specific information about their child. So most parents actually don't even know what a NIC score is. Um, they know what their, their kid's grade is. They know the assessments that were given locally within their school district, within their child's school, um, but they have no idea what that is. So we at the National Parents Union are trying to like go across the country, work with our partners, work with our parent organizations that are members to start to share what this information means as a NAEP score to really alert and make sure that parents know what this is, educate parents on what this means so they can start to focus and, and look at these scores and ways that they can advocate within their children's school for any additional supports that are needed to be able to raise these, these national scores, but also to be able to support their, their children in school, right? A few of the things that came out of the pandemic for ways that children can be supported are organizations like yours, right? Like iTutor, right? Opportunities for kids to get more tutoring, opportunities for after-school programming where there's, there's that additional assistance, weekend programming, right? Like opportunities for kids to be able to get back on track. So uh, like I mentioned earlier, making sure that parents are fully engaged in the education around how the educational system works, which includes letting parents know what NAEP scores are, how are they derived, and really a full understanding of that helps them to be better advocates for, for their children within their schools and also nationally. I love the starting at the place of making sure everybody's on the same page of being able to interpret the information 
Uh, I think often when educators talk to one another, they move in this kind of like spiraling tornado of terminology and acronyms. And so thank you for slowing us down and reminding our listeners and myself that the first thing we need to do is make sure families are at the table, right? That parents understand why this information is alarming and why it splashed the pages of every major media news outlet over the past month. And then we can have conversations about the types of supports, interventions, and involvement that parents can advocate for next, secondarily. That's a really important distinction that I'm glad you made here. Absolutely. Because, you know, parents really want, you know, to be able to help our children. We really want to be able to, to know what tools there are that are available and ways that we can be able to help our children while they're home, right? They, they spend a lot of time at school, but they spend a lot of time at home. So really that's, that's part of our, our goal to make sure that we are helping them in, in a way that helps them to be successful and really in true partnership, right? I, when I hear people say, you know, parent partnerships and like partnerships with the school, you know, I think we also need to start defining like what that looks like effectively. Because we do have some schools that are working together really effectively, but then we have some schools that are not doing a great job with partnering with with parents um, in an effective way. You mentioned earlier about the some types of supports that schools are putting in place to help accelerate learning for all students. Um, sometimes it's the students who performed lowest on a standardized exam, but in many cases, schools re- recognize that interrupted learning and the trauma associated with the past three years has caused a major need for every child. I'm wondering, you know, that, that, sorry, so that intervention, those supports come from the funding from ESSER that came from the federal government to ensure that schools had the proper resources to help children. I'm wondering what interests you see or think parents should have in the way ESSER funds are being distributed in their own communities. Whoa, so, so I know that's a big one. That's a big one. Whoa, that is a big one. And that one is so close to my heart right now because a lot of this funding, you know, we're talking about a total of a billion dollars in funding right? An unprecedented amount of funding that was given to our schools that, you know, barring any uh, pandemic that happens, you know, the next hundred years, this will be the one time that we see this much money invested in, in student learning and supports. So through the National Parents Union, we've actually started in September of 2021, we actually started a campaign called EPIC, which is uh, Everyday Parents Impacting Change school board edition, where we provided training, we've provided toolkits that have been downloaded by over 600 parents across the country, which really spoke to and allowed parents to have that voice to how to speak to school boards about this ESSER funding. You know, I don't know if parents know, or even, you know, folks in education space, I'm sure folks like, you know, policy wants, like, and teachers probably know this, but part of receiving the funding for, for state LEAs was to do community engagement, right? To actually talk to the community about how you need to spend this money. And again, that we can have a whole conversation about what effective community engagement looks like for the federal government, but like really to have the opportunity to host community conversations about where to spend this money. In our latest poll that just came out actually in September um, of this year, we actually showed that 56 56 of parents still do not know about this ESSER funding. So shame on the school districts 
for not doing their effective community engagement with really having conversations with parents about where this money is spent. So our Epic campaign uh, has three components to it. The first one is asking schools to have transparency around where the funding is going. If that means building some type of dashboard or some type of report that shows the buckets where the funding is being spent, but to ask schools to really be transparent about where they're spending the money. And then secondly, to make sure that you are hosting those community engagement opportunities for parents to weigh in on this funding, right? Making sure that at the board meetings, you are laying your plan out, you are showing your dashboard, and then asking parents um, their, their advice on like where they think the money needs to be spent. And then third, which is actually something that I think is very specific to the National Parent Union as we're working directly with parents, um, is to ask parents and students, how does this money feel? right? Your school received $500 million. What feels differently? Were there additional opportunities for supports? Did you have any type of summertime learning? Are there free opportunities for kids to get tutoring, right? Like, what does it look like? What does it feel like to families on the ground to have their school receive this money and then have the money allocated? Um, Part of what we were finding also with parents is that schools are not being transparent with the information surrounding the time frame for when this money is supposed to be spent. I've talked to parents across the country. Again, over 600 parents have downloaded our toolkits and they're showing up at their school board meetings and they're asking these questions and they're saying there should have been community engagement. Like, how's it being spent? Where's, where's our transparency? And, you know, they're, they're not getting the information um, that they need. And then some schools are telling parents that, oh, the money's already been spent, right? Like, oh, there's no more money to be spent, right? And we know, right, with the information that we have, Um, about the ESSER funding and the timelines, that there were three distinct uh, funding um, spaces that were were given to schools. So you have like your ESSER 1, your ESSER 2, your ESSER 3. And this September was the deadline, end of this September, this year is the deadline for the ESSER 1 money to be spent. Next year is the deadline for ESSER 2. The year after that is the deadline for ESSER 3. I just read an article um, where schools were actually still being um, given the opportunity to extend that deadline. And those are extenuating circumstances. That's not like open for everyone. But there is still opportunity to spend this funding. What we're finding is less than 10% of school districts across the country have spent their ESSER 3 funding, which was actually the largest bucket of money. And that particular bucket of money there should have been 20% that was um, held back and dedicated specifically to student supports. So I think parents are crucial in these conversations, showing up to their school board meetings, being able to go and download our toolkit, which actually asks you five questions that you can ask your school board. It gives you information about like what ESSER is, what ARP is, and ways that you as a parent can start to ask some of these questions. And then we are convening focus groups across the country with parents because some of the money has already been allocated, right? We're already into, you know, two years of the funding. So how does it feel, right? Like, has the money been spent in ways that are supportive to your child? Has the money been spent in ways that it is actually enhancing your the culture of your school or enhancing the school building, right? Like, do, do you feel safe there? Does it feel clean, right? So, um, you know, parents as stakeholders in this conversation is not something we would normally have been in, right, going to school board meetings, but we are galvanizing parents across the country to show up for those school board meetings to be able to ask these questions of their local school boards. And then specifically, uh, that campaign actually ends in December of this year, but we have built this into the fabric of how we're going to work with parents across the country to, to ask these few questions um, with any funding source that happens regarding education. It's a really important note 
that it was built into the tranches of money that have been distributed. And I, I find it really sort of like spine tingly when you say that phrase, how does it feel? Because you should be able to see the impact and feel the impact and know there's been a dramatic financial increase for resource allocation within a community. Absolutely. Some of it, I realize it's, you know, in the beginning, folks were talking a lot about improving ventilation systems. Sure, you might not feel that change. And that was expensive. But when schools, you know, there's a high upper 90% of schools that have one-to-one devices for students right now that didn't have them before the pandemic. A large chunk of that were not apparent before the pandemic. That feels different. What interventions have been provided for social and emotional support? academic support. I love the point about climate and community. We know that students in a strong community and climate are more likely to attend school. We know that teachers are likely to stay in the profession. It is beneficial all around to have a positive school culture and climate. So this money is purposely uh, allocated for those those specific uh, types of spending. And so you want the students and the families to be able to know there's a difference and feel that difference. Absolutely. And we, we've been talking to, you know, some school districts who are doing some out of the box things, right? Um, one of our partners we work with, um, Edunomics Lab has an amazing tool to be able to look at, to download. So if you haven't already, please take a look at that tool. It's amazing. Um, we were just like, thank you, right? Like, thank you for creating this. Uh, yes. When that awesome. came out, I was beside myself because people have been trying to triangulate so much of that independently. Edunomics okay. Lab, put it in one beautiful place. Yes, one beautiful place. And they updated all the time with new information and like new ways. But what we found was a lot of the school districts across the country were even thinking outside of the box, right? Like offering parent scholarships, $500 to be able to support their their kids. Um, Some schools we even saw are offering opportunities for kids to do in the summertime to do experiential learning, right? In the summer and like the fall time now, like when school first start, go outside. There was a school district in New Jersey that had some engineers come and like their kids built a canoe, right? So like offering ways to think about this money outside of the box of just thinking about it from like things you can do maybe within the school building. But again, asking parents, asking students, asking teachers, right? I'm sure teachers know a thousand ways <laughs> to be able to Let's spend, spend that money <laughs> on support for their children. Um, right. you know, something else I also, you know, press to a lot of folks when, when, you, when we're thinking specifically, you know, for, for teachers, I think teachers already have information about things that work, right? So like, especially things like the science of reading, right? Like teachers already have something that they know that works. How about schools actually listen to teachers and invest in things that teachers know actually work for kids? That that's, you know, that's, that's a novel idea. But it's a really good one. I mean, invest in what already works. You know, listen to your teachers. Tafshir, this is the hardest thing to do right now, but I have to, I'm like, I could have this conversation for days, both as a teacher, lifelong educator, also as a parent. But I, I'm going to ask the final kind of wrap-up question for our okay, conversation okay. today. <laughs> and I, I am in this bucket. So really, you're thinking about me here, but you're thinking about the whole community of new parents that are have newly school-aged children. So what advice would you give a parent or guardian of a newly school-aged child? 
Oh, I love the pre-K and kindergarten parents. They're so excited. <laughs> They're so new. Everything is so I fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I love them so much. I love them so much. I, I remember the spark that I had with, with my children when they were like newly, you know, in, into the school building. So um, a couple of a couple of things I would give advice on. First, keep that, keep that energy, right? Like keep that same excited energy about your, your child moving into this space of education and learning that is going to be there to, to support them along their, their life journey. Second is to know your rights, right? Like know your rights as a parent. Know the as try and learn the educational system that you've chosen for your, your child in and out, right? Like know how it started, know some of the policies that are being that are being passed for it, know some of the policies about how it began. Um, so definitely know your rights and then make sure that if if there is a community engagement specialist or someone who's doing community engagement at the school, make sure that you create a relationship with that person. Right. That person is going to be able to help you with any supports that you need through the school building. Um, and most importantly, build that relationship from the very beginning with your child teacher. Build that. That relationship is going to be everything. What I always tell parents and what I used to do with my children is at the beginning of the school year, um, I got the teacher's email. Right, You went to like that before even before you even go to back to school night, you usually get the teacher's name and you try to get the teacher's email. Send them an email. Right. Your email should have you know, thank you. Welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for my child to, to start the school. I'm happy for my child to be in this school. Here's, here are two, two or three things that you need to know about my child. Right. And then here are two or three things that you need to know about me as a parent. I'm looking forward to connecting with you. I'm looking forward to this school year. Here are all of my contact, you know, information Here's my email, here's my phone number, right? These are ways that you can get in contact with me, but really starting to build that relationship from the very beginning, letting the teacher know who your child is, letting the teacher know who you are and not just from a lens of like uh, what you expect from the teacher, but like what kind of parent you are, right? Like I am a kind of parent who is going to dedicate an hour a night to work with my child. I'm the kind of parent who's able to come into the school to help out. I'm the kind of parent who can show up to be able to advocate for, for things that teachers need, right? Like let them know who you are as a person and start to build that relationship from the very beginning, because that is going to make all the difference when your child is just in school. And then as they move through the K through 12 system. But keep that same energy, parents. Please keep that kindergarten energy because by the time your kids get to high school, it really starts to wane. <laughs> I'm taking notes here. As, as a, a parent of a first grader and then a, a little one, I'm taking notes. These are excellent, excellent pieces of advice to for newly school-aged parents and guardians. A time that is so critical in your kid's education journey. But Tafshir, I just have to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, sharing so much of yourself your work and your hopes for how parents can engage in and around schools. It is incredibly powerful and I feel enriched just from listening to you. Thank you, Haley. I appreciate this, this time spent with you. And, you know, we can talk for hours <laughs> about this thing. We probably will. Maybe we'll get, we'll get on another episode coming up soon. We can talk about all the topics we didn't cover today. How does that yes. sound? Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone out there for doing this important work, right? Again, this is for children. We do this work for children. It is our passion. We want to make sure that children have the, the best opportunities in life as, as they possibly can have. Um, so thank you to all the stakeholders who are part of the educational system, making everything better for children across the country. 
Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. This episode has been brought to you by itutor.com, your online solution for sourcing highly qualified educators. Join districts all around the nation that use iTutor to connect with thousands of licensed educators who fulfill both core and supplemental instructional needs. Choose iTutor.com. Online education when learning can't wait. Now back to this episode.